This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. Tell the people what you wanted to say, Andrew. Oh, just because you know how sometimes you say something and it's kind of a joke, but then everybody reacts really strongly to it, and then it may, it becomes a thing. Yeah, I know exactly you know how that happens. What, I sometimes. know exactly what that's like. Yeah, that's what that's what has happened with my new hit catchphrase, "Daddy Hungry," which since I became a dad is something that I said in jest one time when I was hungry. Oh, that's and, what that's the word you meant. Yeah. Yes. Okay. And so my wife hates it and all my friends hate it. And but their hate is funny to me. And so sometimes I when I'm hungry, I'm just, you know, daddy hungry. And now I really don't like it. I really don't like I've never liked a letter less. I've never liked the letter W less <laughs> than when it comes out of your mouth in the word hungry. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Overdue. It's a podcast about the books you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name's Andrew, aka Daddy. <laughs> oh, you're really morphing the words on this one in ways yeah. that are making me uncomfortable. Don't worry, though. I had dinner, and now I'm fine. Okay. You just let me know if you get hungry later. I'll let you know. I'll let you know. Daddy um, will let you know. Oh I'm here to let you know God. that every week we read a book that we haven't read before, and we tell the other person about it, and you, the listener, gets to uh, reap the rewards. There are no rewards for Andrew being hungry or hungry, but <laughs> I guarantee I I am worried about how many more times you're gonna say it this episode. I really like I like listening to you say hungry. Oh, I, why do you like it? It's so bad. <laughs> anyway, this week <laughs> I'm here to talk about. The Bear and the Nightingale by Catherine Arden. It's the first book in her Winter Night trilogy. Um, it was a Patreon recommendation from Nicholas, who provided no additional info. I went back and looked at the That's email great. where we were double-checking about people's recommendations, and he just wrote in, Bear and the Nightingale, Catherine Arden. That's it. All right. I mean, here we go. Here. I guess we'll have to make up our own reasons why Nicholas likes this one. Oh, that's a good game. Mm-hmm. I hadn't thought so about just, it. You think about that for okay. a second while I tell you a little bit about Catherine Arden. Thank you. Uh, she was born in 1987, and she's an American novelist who briefly spent time in Russia, and it had kind of an outsized influence did you, on the way she- Did you just say briefly? She... No, I said briefly. Mm. She briefly spent time in <laughs> Russia, and that's informed a lot of her writing and uh, personality, like yes. the way she presents herself. <laughs> okay. Uh, she's quite a traveler. Uh, Baron the Nightingale was written over several years as she sort of, as her website 
described that sort of drifts from place to place and thing to thing. Yeah. Uh, was finished and picked up in late 2014, published in 2017, um, which explains why the second book in this trilogy, The Girl in the Tower, came out also in 2017. Like this one was January and, and that one was December. Um, and then The Winter of the Witch, which came out in January of 2019, concludes the Winter Night trilogy. But yeah, my understanding is that it is, it's uh, influenced by Russian folklore. Mm-hmm. It put me between that and like the winter vibes and um, and that it has like a female protagonist. It's it reminded me a bit of Spinning Silver by Naomi Novik, which I read for uh, like episode 300 and something a while back. Yeah, I wish I had uh, the, 332. I wish I had the number four Ghost Bride, which I read by Yangshe Chu, because that was that reminds me of this book in the. Young, 281. What, 281? 381? 381. Um, like young woman encounters literalized versions of folklore um, and like learns that the world she thought was stories is more than stories kind of stuff. Um, that's a big part of this book. Um, Andrew, did you see in your research, I found an article um, from when her like book deal was signed or whatever uh, about why those first two books came out in such rapid succession no i didn't so i just assumed it was because she had quite a bit of time between when she got the deal and when the first one actually came out well and here's why she had the time so she'd been working on for a while her her mom actually got her like an editing session with a friend in texas who was like no you need an agent they spent 18 months trying to get it published got a second agent that person got it got the book deal it was bumped a year because its original release date would have coincided with george rr R. martin's winds of winter <laughs> which has yet to come out which has yet to come out and it will never come out sorry nerds it's never it's never happening so they delayed her book by like a year giving her time to write the second one and now of course she has written an entire trilogy in the time that that man has uh failed to write that book several Um, times not nothing he wrote some episodes of the tv show but he's clearly not interested anymore i just (laughs) i'm i'm wondering who who is who in publishing would take George R. R. Martin's deadlines seriously enough to like make any plans based upon them. That's a good point. I think the winds of winter will be like weather itself. Like if it ever comes, it will be a surprise to everybody, including the author. And we probably will know about it 10 days ahead of time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. She seems like, you know, the, the run up to this book she what she studied at middlebury she like studied russian culture and i think maybe also french but um like had an interest in it that probably stemmed from her gap year um and then has like obviously as you said kind of presented in the rest of her career pretty heavily um and then this book got like a big boost from barnes and noble and then did really well on amazon um so like pretty quick out the gate a a good success story even though she was entering the publishing world like while it was still reeling from the great recession and and things like that i can't believe that winds of winter thing (laughs) that's so wild why would you do that i don't know but it worked out for her 
Yeah, I guess. You know, hasn't hurt, didn't hurt her one bit because people didn't even know. They weren't like, oh, where's the book, lady? Which that's, they are yeah, saying fair. to which people have been saying to him for years. Yeah. Where's Where, the book, lady? Where's the book, lady? That's my catchphrase. <laughs> <laughs> um, Arden has also written two children's novels, Small Spaces and Dead Voices, which I mention only because those are very Gillian Flynn-y mm-hmm. book titles. <laughs> Just wanted to point that out. Yeah, I think the Small Spaces book cover has some like Edward Gorey fonting on mm, it too. Sure, that makes sense. Um, and we'll talk about this as we get into the book, but it does the 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 story. I think draws some elements from Vasilisa the Beautiful, which is like a Russian folklore, not a riff. It's like probably a parallel trope to Cinderella with like an evil stepmother who tries to rid herself of the daughter she inherits. And then that's the story that has Baba Yaga in it. And I'm not really sure what a Baba Yaga is. And Baba Yaga is not in this book specifically. Um, but all that kind of folklore factors into it. It is said in like the 14th century of Russia. So I don't know if that's helpful. Yeah, you you asked me to look up background on the Russian like folklore yeah, in this yeah. story, and it sounds like you're going to have more <laughs> to say about that than than I will, because from everything I read about it, she is pretty she's pretty um, generous about explaining the source of the like the sources of the book, like both within the story itself and in an afterward that I saw a couple people complaining about on Goodreads. Mm, yeah, the afterwards. Where she apparently gets she apparently gets really defensive about some of her language choices or something like that. Do you but, want let's let me just bring that up real quick because sure, let's do it. There is a great um there's a really solid NPR review uh from Amal El uh, Motar. Amal 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 El Motar. Yeah. Um and I looked up I looked up two different YouTube videos oh, about great. how to Thank pronounce you. her name because I found this review also. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and they shout out the afterword also because it's like, it's a pretty good book that I had a good time with and there are some issues with how it ends and then some stuff she says in the author's note just feels weird. Students and speakers of Russian will surely note and possibly deplore my wildly unsystematic approach to transliteration. I can almost hear the hand-wringing of readers who will be asking, for example, by what possible method could I have gotten Vodianoi from the Russian Cyrillic and then have turned around and gotten Domovoi from the Russian Cyrillic, a word with an identical ending. The answer is that in transliterating, I had two aims. Uh, I sought to render Russian words in a ways to retain a bit of their exotic flavor. Uh, the word exotic should just, we should just retire that word, I think. It doesn't yeah, do what think people anybody, think it does anymore. Nobody uses it good. <laughs> it does, And I don't even think Arden's like using it poorly. It just has a whole bunch of connotations. Um, yeah. And second, it's I- like w- a bunch of a bunch of unnecessary othering. Baggage, yeah. Maybe yeah, even yeah. like a voyeury sort of which, connotation. Yeah. Which the NPR review points out is like in direct conflict with how homey and lived in the book feels. Sure. Um, sure. I, but I do think she then says, um, and this I found successful, I wanted the Russian words to be reasonably pronounceable and aesthetically pleasing to speakers of English. Um, I like the way that some of the words look on the page and also wanted like names like Constantine to start with the K rather than the anglicized C so that you really feel a sense of place. So like 
It's just like weird. I wanted it to be Russia, but I also just wanted to do my own thing. Well, with it. and I didn't want to write it in Russian. Um, it's just weird that she was like, "Yeah, I was kind of deliberately loosey goosey with some stuff," um, because that just undercuts what is really valuable and working in the book in in terms of sense of place and in terms of how the characters talk to one another. I don't know if it's accurate. I am not a, you know, experienced reader of Russian or Slavic text, but she has a lot of the like pet name uh, things that people use where like, you know, someone's name is Alexander, but a couple of different people call him Sasha or have other like extra syllables that they tag on when they are, you know, referring to a family member in a beloved way. Um, And that all feels really true and lived in. But then, yeah, some of her transliterations from Cyrillic are just like based on what she thought looked cool. And that (laughs) seems to go against the grain of the aims of the book. I don't know. Well, there there is such a thing, I think, as as explaining yourself too much, especially if you're trying to. I don't know if you if you've set up in your head a collection of Internet commenters who will be reading and complaining about your book and then you pick that point to like launch your defensive. It's very Streisand effecty. It's like, hey, there's listen, I know there's probably something wrong with my transliteration, but here's the reasons why I didn't correct it is a real like invitation to a bunch of trolls that weren't even paying attention in the first place. Yeah. Well, I'm like, and like you said, you're not a student of Russian, but now you know that all yep. this stuff is wrong with what she did. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I feel like we try to do caveats when useful as well, but this was a weird thing to read immediately after the book, which, like, I don't know, it put me in a weird headspace with her. So I was, I was. Well, yeah, and and I know you and I both like to read those just yeah. when they exist, just as a, like a supplement or as even part of our author research is to to hear in the author's own words what they were mm-hmm. thinking when they did certain things and and sometimes it's really useful and in this case it sounds like it was useful but it was maybe more off-putting than it needed to be <laughs> yeah and and probably perhaps than she even thought it would be um let's take a quick break and then i can get into the actual story itself okay Craig, Daddy Hungry. Are you hungry for support for our program? Yeah, that's how I buy food and make myself less hungry. Well, let me tell you about one of our supporters this week. Uh, Brianna Bond, a.k.a. No Ordinary Scholar, asked us to plug uh, her upcoming book, Queen of Thieves, A New Throne. She's one of our Patreon supporters. It's a YA thriller, and it's a mix of comedy, lighthearted fun, and emotional struggles due out sometime next month in April. Uh, Here's part of the blurb. Dallas Ryder has lived with the pain and repercussions of her father's execution for years. Now the same government that put him to death wants her help. Though her laundry list of skills come in handy, it was her depression that assured the borough for covert initiatives she was perfect for the job. It's simple enough. Infiltrate the home of a black market arms dealer by conning his lonely son into falling in love with her. Desperate to ensure no more lives are lost, she accepts the mission, but is it doomed to fail one way or the other? Sounds intriguing. Is it? I don't know. We'll find oh, out. Okay. All right. <laughs> uh, uh, as Brianna said, the book should be sometime should be out sometime in April, and you can you know follow along and see where it's published. It should be coming to Amazon. Um, follow her YouTube and Patreon channels by searching for No Ordinary Scholar on both, uh, and that's how you can find out more. Thanks, Brianna, for your support, and back to the show. 
based on what your research was, Andrew, did you uh, see any immediate parallels to spinning silver that you want to use as like table setting that might help you like get in? Or what is your memory I mean, of that book that's worth bringing up, I think? No, I mean, I, I mostly was just responding to the broad similarities, like particularly the uh, the the fairy tale uh, sort yes. of framing for it, mm-hmm. as opposed to, you know, like fantasy is having a moment and has been having a moment like for 20 years now. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but usually it, it is in the form of like a winds of wintry, like a like a a directly Tolkien inspired long running series of like very sort of dark and convoluted. Yes. Sure. Lines. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas like this and spinning silver both try to use something, you know, I mean, fairy tales aren't light because a lot of the original fairy tales are pretty like macabre, macabre. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but they are, shorter and they're more self-contained and they're more i don't know they're they're more like parables in a way if that makes yeah. sense yeah yeah, yeah yeah they don't have magic systems you know they don't have this they don't necessarily have the same hero's journey like baked into them in the same way um and so they tend to be a little fuzzier at the edges in a way that i tend to like um this book is interesting in that it is drawing on both that folkloric tradition as well as a little bit of Russian history that's like peppered in the background. So I, I want to give that a little bit of uh, lead time and then I probably won't talk about it ever again because like that's kind of how it's treated in the book. All right. Like it's set in 14th century Russia. We meet some historical figures in Moscow, uh, you know, a few chapters in. Um, Ivan the second, maybe, um, the golden horde of the cons is in like power and all of the Russians regularly pay them tribute. Um, and I think Ivan is Ivan or Dimitri, uh, one of the princes, um, is going to grow up and like take on the cons. Um, and they're dealing with a bunch of internal power struggles. Uh, but this book is all focused in a municipality up in the north um to make a george r r martin comparison where they kind of <laughs> yep. have their he's, own he's the only guy who has cardinal directions in his book <laughs> no, it's true you know what i mean there's like <laughs> a separate so there are we meet this guy uh piotr um vladimirovich um and he is a boyer or like a feudal lord of this uh, like municipality Lesnaya, Zamiya, north of Moscow and up in the wintry woods. Um, and so they kind of have their own thing going on. And every once in a while, he has to pay tributes to the prince. Um, he ends up marrying the daughter of one of the princes. Um, and that is our main character, uh, Vasila or Vasya's mother, who passes away when she is born. Mm-hmm. And so, like, you to advance some cer- some parts of the plot there is a trip where Piotr and and two of his sons um go to Moscow and interact with some people and some marriage deals get done um but the rest of it is really set in this small village um or at least it feels small i i honestly can't say if it's supposed to read bigger than it does it does feel like humble 
for lack I mean, of a better, I think the, you know, the, the word village just has certain unavoidable connotations. Yeah, it does. It does. Um, like you don't you don't use village if you're trying to conjure a picture of a bustling town. No, I don't think. No, and and it is a very village agrarian... can only be preceded by the adjective sleepy. I think. <laughs> sure, and it's very agrarian. They have their farms. They have their horses. They go hunting for game in the woods, um, and they're just trying to live each season. Um, Andrew, I know from another podcast that you do that you love talking about like winter and weather in fiction. It's like a bit. It's like sure. your whole thing, right? Like, yeah, I love it. Okay. Um, and so there's a lot in this book where people talk about like whether or not the 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 barley that they plant this season is good because it got too damp and then the bread's gonna suck next year. Like it's it's just the little details of life in this type of society feel really they feel really real. And I think there's some of the reviews of this book talk about how that is a way for Arden to like fill in historical gaps like maybe if there was better record keeping in this time and better architectural records she talks about in an interview at one point she would have more stuff to go on but instead she really leans into like the sensory experience of what it might have been like to just live in the woods back right then. yeah like like for this kind of thing it's it's much more important for it to feel true or real than for it to actually literally be yes supported by the text yes. and i think there was actually some stuff in um the uh, Biff, you know, the the book about Jesus's friend Biff that oh, I read. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> that was sort of like that because it's writing about a, a period that's essentially undocumented, but, you know, he he strings together enough believable stuff to create something that feels plausible. Yes, and, you, and you're not like, you're not writing it for someone back then to read it and go, oh, it's me. You're writing it for someone now to read it and like have an emotional response. Yes, sure. Um, so that historical backdrop is happening. Um, and then the other thing that we've been talking about is this like fairy tale tradition. And so the book even starts with before Vasya's birth, um, the nanny of their family, Dunya, is like telling them this fairy tale about uh, the winter king named Morozko, who like lives in the woods and then will occasionally like take a maiden as some sort of like offering and sometimes they die and sometimes they come back with a sledge full of prizes and like gems and money and stuff. Um, And there's this tension between like whether or not any of that's real, like, Oh, is that just a story or did this really happen? Is the winter King a real person? Um, And Piotr's like big family of kids are like really into this story um and it's you know you get you, there are a couple characters throughout the book who are like those are just stories this is not real life right which of course is setting the table for yeah it's totally gonna be real life <laughs> that's totally how this works <laughs> mm-hmm. um and his wife marina who as i mentioned was like the daughter of one of the princes her mother was said to have been sort of a witch and have some magical powers and she wants to have another daughter. She gets pregnant. She's like, hey, I'm going to keep this kid even though it might kill me because I can tell that she's going to have magic powers. you got to take care of her. And Piotr's like, I, I guess so. You're my wife. I love you. Let's go for it. And yeah, she totally dies in childbirth. Um, and Vasya grows up without her mother. Okay. Um, 
there's a bunch of different time jumps in the book. Uh, I think one of the phrases that Arden uses is that the time, the years slipped by like leaves at one point, she says. And there's lots of little like poetry like that throughout the book, which I enjoyed. Um, but Vasya is described as we meet her. It's like she is a, like the black sheep of the family. She does not fit in, even though people like her, like her family loves her. Um, she has three older brothers and older sister. Uh, and then when her dad remarries, she gets a younger sister. Um, and she is described as like a frog, um, and not, you know, <laughs> a, not attractive. Um, uh, Vasilisa Petrovna was an ugly little girl, skinny as a reed stem with long fingered hands and enormous feet. Her eyes and mouth were too big for the rest of her. Olga called her frog and thought nothing of it, but the child's eyes were the color of the forest during a summer thunderstorm. Uh, and her wide mouth was sweet. She could be sensible when she wished and clever, so much so that her family looked at each other bewildered each time she abandoned sense and took yet another madcap idea into her head. Um, so she's not quite... Like, the book doesn't present her as just like, oh, I'm a tomboy, I like to just do boy things. She just is like a wild kid. Like, she just doesn't fit into any archetype which makes it very difficult for them to like raise her properly as they're trying to go about living a life. Yeah. I think it's, that's pretty common, like a pretty common trope in this kind of story, I think where, okay, you're in a sleepy village. Most people are just, are focused on their subsistence level living Mm -hmm. and anybody who wants to do anything else sort of has their head in the clouds. And I don't know, it makes, it makes you the reader sympathize with them more i yeah. guess mm-hmm. because they're trying to like get out of their their humdrum existence and do other things but. yeah 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 yeah. and it doesn't quite feel like she is like waiting to be to get her destiny like it doesn't it's not that type of story even though you know she does stumble into some stuff bigger than herself um but it isn't like oh it's not like luke being like i want to get up into the stars and like blow some cool stuff up like i'm not like She's not angling to be some hero. She's just like, I don't know. She just wants to play and and run around and hang out with animals and is just different from other people. Um, And so an early thing that happens that kind of spurs a lot of people needing to know what they're going to do with her. She gets lost in the woods, kind of like Zelda style, Andrew. Like she goes into the woods just to run around. And then all of a sudden she can't find her way back out. And she goes, she tries to go like Northwest, Southwest or whatever the lost woods direction (laughs) order is. But she she doesn't hear the chime and she doesn't really know what to do. Um, And she sees this tree under which a dude with like a messed up face is missing an eye. He's super spooky. Uh, he's kind of like coming at her, but he's really weak. And she's not sure if he's like trying to eat her or what. And then another man on a big, beautiful horse rolls up and is like, yo, stop. And then she like runs out of there uh, and her brothers find her. And Why she, was it important to you to describe to me the beauty of the horse? Horses are very important in this book, and they're all okay. like hot as hell. <laughs> all these okay, horses. <laughs> all right. Most of the horses are super dope and beautiful and very strong, and most of the people in this book do not give them the respect they deserve. 
Okay, well, I asked and I received an answer. That so is, yes. The, the other thing, um, okay, so I want to get to Moscow real quick. Uh, they do rescue her from the woods and the brothers like go to their dad and they're like, yo, dad. Uh, one of them literally says, she will soon be unmanageable. And he's like, you need to remarry so that she has a mother and just stops like getting into trouble. Um, and... They go to Moscow. There's a horse thing that occurred to me in Moscow, Andrew. So nobody has cars, right? It's like the 1400s or the 1300s. Right. Yes. And if you parked your horse somewhere, like someone could just get on your horse and ride it away. Like That's why you got to put the club on your horse. <laughs> low jack your horse so you know <laughs> yeah. where it is. There, like, a, There's a couple interactions in Moscow where people just walk up and touch other people's horses. And... Arden does a pretty good job of explaining how that would be really offensive to someone else. Like that is your yeah. imagine if you parked your car and someone just got into it. Yeah, like I spent a lot of time souping up that horse. Don't touch my horse. <laughs> I built that horse with my son in my garage. I put I'd spray painted gold rims for my horse, and you I don't want you just to come up. And you don't it. even know how to drive a stick horse. You're gonna ruin all the gears. <laughs> Can't find him, grind him. <laughs> you left the parking brake on my horse. Um, so there we do encounter the the beautiful horse again uh, in Moscow. Good, I'm I glad. Think. Um, and. That man, so this happens after Piotr has his one son has, you know, decided to go join a monastery, which is not a decision that anybody likes um, because he's turning his back on like his land, I suppose. We get a marriage deal with the prince where Piotr's new wife is going to be his like daughter that everyone thinks is mad because she's kind of like uh, she's maybe sees things and talks to herself a lot and is very skittish um, in exchange for Piotr's daughter, Olga going off and marrying someone else to like, it's all power brokery and is resolved in a few pages. And then you never really hear from those characters again. Um, maybe they come back in other books. I think they do. I think some of the Moscow stuff comes back in book two or three and you can sort of feel that happening. I don't know the last time you, read like a new series Andrew where you could feel this where it's like oh that was a character that we clearly had some connections to and now they're just gone and wow I bet that they're gonna come back later <laughs> yeah yeah I mean that happens pretty much we read pretty frequently the first book in a planned mm -hmm. series for the show and yeah you can usually detect that sort of I mean in the same way that we're trained to see it in the last episode of a yeah. TV season or a movie that's that's got you know aspirations of like beating the Marvel universe at its own <laughs> game or whatever. Yes. And just have like how many stingers can you have at the end of credits? Um those it's... should be those Congress should outlaw those, by the way. <laughs> they should e they should either not be allowed or at the beginning of the credits, it should tell you whether you have to wait or not. I like that idea. Sometimes I like that. Got, sometimes, sometimes, sometimes you've had like a gallon of Diet Coke in 90 minutes and you need to, you need to find the exit. Well, and then there should <laughs> be a message. But you want to know if you're going to miss anything. There should yeah. be a message that's like, hey, go pee and come back. We got more stuff for you. Really, now we're arguing for commercial breaks in movies, which... Hmm? hmm? 
Hmm. Hmm. Anyway. Anyway. Um, yeah, the her brother Sasha is the one that gets like, I wish we're in this book more because the brief conflict between him and his dad about like, why are you turning your back on your village to go join this, like go become a monk and like follow this. They're all ostensibly, they're all ostensibly Christian. Um, Mm -hmm. though a big conflict throughout the latter part of the book is that they are turning their back on like their old ways and their old folk, you know, beliefs. Um, and so Sasha betraying the family to go off and join an actual church and monastery feels like an untapped like vein for this theme that Arden seems interested in. Um, so I do wish he had been in more of the book, and I bet he's in the other ones. Um, anywho, when we get the stepmother, then it becomes the like evil stepmother thing. And she's not evil. She's just like, kind of sucks. like i think it like village can only be preceded by sleepy and stepmother can only be preceded by evil so like i think that's just the framework that we're working with here yeah any stepmother and and the maybe then that's not fair to stepmother it's really not but it's really not um and there there is a little bit of the like she's younger so she's not like close to vasya's age but she is younger than you would uh, like it's always it's always tough. That's usually a thing. Um, sister mom, yeah, a little bit of mom sister going on, and also, uh, Anna's whole deal. This is the new wife, the stepmother, Anna. She sees stuff a lot. She sees demons, and when she gets to the village and she's living in this new house, yo, there's just like demons all over the place. And they're not bad demons. They're just around. And it becomes... So they're a- like chill Buffy the Vampire Slayer demons who just want to like hang out and talk to you. Yeah, they're little like creatures <laughs> that inhabit... This is like a big part of this Slavic folklore tradition that Arden is drawing from is there are these house demons like the Domovoy. Uh, the dome boy was small and squat and brown. He had a long beard and brilliant eyes. At night, he crept out of the oven to wipe the plates and scour away the soot. He used That's to helpful. he used to do mending too when people left it out. But Anna would shrink if she saw a stray shirt, and few of the servants would risk her anger. Before Vasya's stepmother arrived, they had left offerings for him: a bowl of milk or a bit of bread. But Anna shrieked then too. Dunya and the serving maids had begun hiding their offerings in odd corners where Anna rarely came, and then like later you find out that not only can Anna see them but Vasya can see them too which is part of her like witch second sight stuff that sets her apart and they both see the Domovoy at the same time and Vasya's like what it's the Domovoy it cleans stuff what's the problem (laughs) and Anna starts screaming and freaks out and that's like their big riff moving forward is that Anna thinks she is being like tormented by these demons that are like taking her away from Christ and Vasya's is like, yo, we just like, they're just chill helpers. Yeah. They're and, just house elves. And now some like, of them we don't like, there's one called the Bonnet who lives in the bathhouse and just is like a creepy old man who leers at all the ladies in the bathhouse. And we don't like the Bonnet. No, he sounds like he sucks, but I don't think he hurts anyone. Um, there's lots well, of, well, that's, 
it's not ideal what no, he's doing. No, it's not ideal. Physically, it's not hurting anybody. At least not in the story, anyway. Good point. Um, there are some water spirits who can be dangerous. Um, there is also one spirit that we spend a lot of time with, the Vasilla, which lives in the stables and takes care of the horses, but also is like an embodiment of how the horses feel. Um, and that creature teaches Vasya to talk to the horses, which is a thing that goes on the rest of the book, um, which is why we know all the horses are so cool and so sweet. Um, and so the, the thing that starts to develop in the middle of the book is that like Vasya is this like keeper of the old ways by virtue of being able to see all these creatures that everyone is like, yo, you, we gotta leave chips out for the chip demon. Like, you gotta, like, I don't know, Andrew, what house demons live in your house, do you think? I have a chip Wait, demon if, in my house, and it's me. <laughs> it's you, yeah. You know, if it's if it's stuff that just mysteriously disappears, I guess we must have a pacifier demon. Oh, no. Uh, I mean, the cat is kind of his own sort of demon. <laughs> It's kind of like, like hair ties and, and things will disappear I, pretty routinely. I bet there's a demon in our like water pump, like the the way water functions our piping, our piping, our plumbing is like a little wonky in the hot water, but it like it's never bad, but it's got a personality. So I think maybe there's a <laughs> demon in there. <laughs> sure. Sucking up all your hot water. Well, it's when you use the hot water, like the pipes start rattling just to let you know, like, hey, we're here in the hot water. Demons mm-hmm. here. You got any computer demons? Damons? I'm, any mailing demons? Those are those are called viruses. <laughs> I'm just thinking this is the difference between owning a home and renting. Oh, sure, yes. You hear rattling in the pipes, and it's like, hey, my house has a personality. Hey, bada bing. <laughs> And if I hear that, I'm like, wow, how many hundreds or thousands of dollars is that going to eventually cost? <laughs> it's true. Yeah, you're right. This is the yeah. difference. Um, That's the difference. Bada bing. <laughs> Daddy hungry. Um, <laughs> now you're saying, now you're robbing it of its potency. Yeah, that's been my it. goal the whole time, actually. Mm. Um, but Vasya is... Getting along fine with these demons. She is dismayed because not only does Anna not like these demons, but another dude arrives from Moscow, this priest named Constantine, who is super talented at painting like icons, like religious saints and things. And he desktop icons. Yes, he's really good at painting he trash cans. Really good, and... He does a really good recycle bin, really <laughs> good my my computer. Yep, definitely. And yeah, I I heard this guy shows up like halfway through this book, and some people like to the extent that I read complaints about this book on like Goodreads or or in that uh, NPR review we talked about. It's about like the ending of the book. Yeah, I'll get and to that. Some of it is about like the like the fanatical Christianity that this that this priest guy sort of embodies, right? Yeah. So he gets at a big theme in the book, which is fear. And one of the things that sets Vasya apart from literally anyone else in the book is that she is almost never afraid in any real tangible way. She has she can be overcome by problems, she can lose at things and she can be beaten down by you know the elements or demons or whatever but she is often willing to face a problem head on um and so one of the things that Arden writes a lot about is like 
how different characters are motivated by their fear of bad things happening, and Constantine's whole faith is based on a fear of the Christian God. And so when he is sent out to the boonies, which is almost like a punishment because he's getting too popular in Moscow, I think, um, he hates this place because it stinks, and all he wants to do is paint his cool icons and like lead a cool church. And he realizes that these people here do not have a proper fear of God. And Anna comes to him and is like, yo, I see demons. And he's like, yo, I got a remedy for that is called fear of God. And he starts giving a lot of fire and brimstone speeches to the congregation about leaving behind the old ways because they are like, they, he says something to the effect of like, they, claim to be Christian, but then they are still leaving offerings for these like house demons and carrying around these totems. So that's even worse than not believing in God in the first place. Cause they're like being two faced with their faith. Um, so he is like trying to instill a lot of fear in them because he thinks it's a virtue and it is ultimately portrayed as like a bad thing. I think Arden is coming down as like, this is bad. Why would you do this? You're erasing this existing culture. Um, the the demons start like literally dying because nobody's leaving them bits of old bread, <laughs> you know, or like <laughs> yeah, right. paying them tribute or like imagine if, you know, it's like every um, Santa movie where Santa gets weaker if not enough people do, like believe in him. It's sort of like that. Okay. Um, but it's more a little more literal, so it, it's not in the form of belief, but in the form of the actual milk and cookie yes, offering. Correct, true. If Santa doesn't get enough cookies, he gets skinnier and skinnier till he doesn't exist anymore. Yes, I would watch that movie. Um, hmm. And so Vasya is like the only one kind of keeping this torch alive, and she becomes the subject of Constantine's ire, where he like sort of falls into this fanatical save the cheerleader, save the world mentality where he's like, Oh man, pick a really good topical reference that everybody in our audience can appreciate. (laughs) What? You don't think everybody listening watched the hit NBC drama heroes back in 2004, whatever it was. Gee whiz. (laughs) Um, so he gets this really unhealthy focus on her because he is like, oh, she is flaunting all of the rules, and she is really the one. I think she's flouting them. Flouting, excuse me. She's not. Thank she's, you. If she's flaunting them, she's showing them off. Oh, you're right. <laughs> look at you. look at my rules, everybody. <laughs> um, and this and like, not only is she doing it to try and keep these like demons alive, but she is like they're helping her. They are keeping her house safe from growing metaphysical danger. Uh, which I've barely talked about. Um, They are teaching her how to ride horses and care for the horses and learn about them as creatures that are worthy of our respect and admiration. Um, And he is like, no, she's a witch, and if I can save her soul, then I can save this community. Um, And that is like the central character conflict. And yeah, he sucks. He's a bad dude. And the, the way that he gets fixated on her gets sort of gross. It never gets like too gross, but it does 
uh, I was reminded of the character Angelo from Measure for Measure, who's very gross Shakespeare play, who's like, oh, I got to help this lady who's very pious. Oh, wow. Now I'm like weirdly attracted to her and I don't know how to deal with that because my faith doesn't have room for that. And now I'm just going to go nuts. Um, that's what Constantine feels like. Um, sure. Yeah, it, that is I don't think Arden is is putting that type of fanaticism in the book to be like, this is a thing that we should be interested in. Um it's a thing about, and you see this in other fantasy books. I was actually reminded of what was that, um, the Mist of Avalon, actually, in the way that like that portrayed Christianity in pinging on existing culture um, and like trying to take what was useful to keep people in the church, but otherwise eradicate the things that would threaten its like power, um, okay. and. Yeah, that's I don't know. I found that that worked for me. I don't I don't know that I would complain about that character necessarily. Um especially when the the Marazko, who is the Winter King who does exist, um and his brother Medved, who is uh who was that guy with one eye under the tree who is like fear personified, I guess, um who wants to destroy the world. Uh, when the two of them start coming into the story, like Medved starts impersonating God because Constantine's faith like needs to speak to God directly. And so he is very uh, suggestible. And then Morozko is like trying to muster through Vasya all of the, the like folklore demon people so that they are healthy enough to protect people from Medved. Okay. Um, so yeah, I don't know. It all, that stuff... That stuff mostly worked for me. The the ending and the back third get a little too rote fantasy. What do you think? How, yeah, explain what you mean because I because I saw that in other reviews too. Is it gets for something that feels relatively fresh in its first like half or two thirds, mm-hmm. it gets tropey in the in the back part. It so. does. It does. Um, can I say one thing? I I liked actually to give us a like a a thing in the ground to be like I'm more of this and then yes. less of the thing I didn't like um, I was very pleasantly surprised by a middle chapter in the book where um, earlier they've been given this talisman to give to Vasya when she's old enough which is going to betroth her or something to the Winter King and they're like we have to give this to her at some point because the Winter King keeps bugging us in our dreams and they don't want to give her up so like if she's married we can keep her safe so we go through this um, arranged marriage scenario where she's going to marry this dude named Kilia, I think is his name. Kirill, excuse me. And he kind of sucks. He's just boorish. He's like a Gaston, but not as hot, I guess. <laughs> well, what's Gaston, but not as hot? <laughs> He's, He's just, nothing. Yeah, exactly. Uh, he only eats three dozen eggs. Um, he... And he's like an oafish dude. One of the things that Vasya doesn't like about him is that he clearly is mean to his horses, and she can like tell because she can talk mm. to his horses. And love a love a person who, like, you can tell what you're supposed to think of them by how they treat the like lowest people mm-hmm. or animals that mm-hmm. they regularly encounter. It's a good yeah. It's a good character note. Um, and that whole chapter ends with I thought it was building towards like him getting killed in some sort of boar hunt um, in a way that felt very like 
fantasy tropey cliche, but instead it ends with her stealing his horse to save her nephew who's in danger and it like emasculates him and he's like nah the marriage is off i'm out i can't handle it like your daughter sucks (laughs) and (laughs) and i really liked that because it ended in a way i didn't expect it advanced her character it doubled down on how she feels about her family and it felt like a an interesting little episodic story in the middle of the book the back part is like I don't know, we got this guy who's the god of winter and death, and he's been around causing magic, and his brother is a bear, but he's also a man, and he he wants fear, and he's hunting down witches, and he's bringing the dead back to life, um, and so, like, people are dying, main characters are dying, and then they come back as creepy vampire zombies, um, and then it all culminates in this, like, literal... The house demons are on both sides. Like, remember the end of Twilight when it was just kind of a fight and you didn't really know who was doing what? Sure. When it was or just like, like the end of Harry Potter when it was yeah, a fight. And nobody yeah. knows and it, really who was doing what. Yeah, and it's like, it's not... There's only a couple characters that you recognize and it's it's mostly there to show you that, like, a lot of stuff is going on. Um, And then it ends on a character note that, like, there's a sacrifice that isn't made by Vasya, it's made by another character, and I thought it undercut her as the protagonist. Okay. Um, even though it was, like, this courageous act that was supposed to kind of drive home, I think, this theme of overcoming fear, it just felt very neat and pat, but not the book I'd been reading. Um, sure. And similarly, the big climactic battle felt odd and didn't feel like a thing that we were building towards, um, what I really liked was the way that, like, because they weren't reading, re- leaving bread crusts and stuff and believing in these demons anymore, um, their defenses against this, like, ancient evil were weakening. Like, all of these little demons that live in your computer and live in your oven and live wherever, like, they are actually going to protect you when evil starts to manifest um, and can, like, protect your home and ward off stuff. But if you stop believing in them or if you stop interfacing with the natural world in the way that they're used to, then this like evil bear man can come back and like just undo everything. Um, That was really interesting, but I wasn't expecting it and didn't find it satisfying for it to just turn into like a classic fantasy battle, which the book had really avoided up until that point. Like no one had done anything like that. I can't think of another book that's done that, that I re- and I really liked this. And in the middle, I was like, this is happening? I'm, no, I'm struggling to think of another reading experience I've had for the show recently where I've been like so surprised by what an author decided to do. Yeah, like I'm, I'm not... My only points of, of comparison is, is like when we talked... Okay. Yeah. When we talked about the Fifty Shades book. Oh, sure. Let's go there. And how those were like one big fan fiction mess that was then like edited and split up into different books. Oh, yeah. So that every book interrupted the sort of stream of consciousness narrative with a <laughs> manufactured like ending point. Oh, so yes. that the the individual volume would have an end yeah. to do. <laughs> <laughs> Reading about her like writing process for this, it sounds like it, it at least started like the manuscript started life as just a bunch of 
like loosely connected, just like vignettes. Like she just, she just would write and write and add on to it and add on to it. And it became clear later what the story was supposed to be. So I'm wondering, given that there are two other books in the series, whether there's not some element of that going on. Like we're going to have multiple books. This one needs to have some kind of climax. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And this is like the easiest way to accomplish that. Yes. And like, not it's uh, it's only a minor spoiler to say that like none of the major evils are completely vanquished like stuff could still come back and come back worse than before um in a way that lots of fantasy does you know and and that's that's a thing that you might expect from anything that's a series yeah you always have to have the villain's hand like reaching up through a pile of ashes <laughs> at the end of the movie uh-huh, or something uh-huh. so that they can become super shredder in the second movie um <laughs> And yeah, it's just I don't know it, it for me and and really I I was just not satisfied with the major sacrifice that happened and um uh, uh, P- people who've read the book please email us and let me know what you think because I was not pleased. Um, the last thing I'll just give a shout out is that there's a big undercurrent in the book where she is ruminating on uh women's place in this society and I guess like in a man's society at large. We talked a little bit about how she does and doesn't fit Vasya into like tomboy archetypes. There's like a little kind of I wish I could dress up as a man and go off to fight Mulan style like riff early on, but that it doesn't okay. live in that world. It kind of goes off of it. And I really like how a lot of the time we spend with her is like how she cares for the horses and is taking care of these demons um, in ways that none of the other characters do. Um, the the biggest tension for her is whether or not she's going to get married or get sent to a convent, um, which are apparently the only two options. Those are the, yeah, those are the two genders. Right. In this case. (laughs) Um, And when she is leaving at the end of the book to like go off to sequel land, um, she says, you know, they're asking her to stay and she's like, what is there for me here, but walls and cages, I will be free and I will not count the cost. And her brother says, can you not be content? Men will forget about all this in time. And what you call cages is the lot of women, which is just read the room, bro. That's not helpful. (laughs) Um, The word cages actually appears in the book like seven times. And only once is it not used to discuss this exact like metaphor of women being trapped. Um, And I think the book handles that pretty well until it goes like you know, turns it up to 11 into fantasy land and that becomes less of a going concern. Sure. Um, so yeah, she was a fun character to spend time with. I liked it. I shouted out Ghost Bride earlier because I think I liked this book for the same reasons I liked that one. Um, you might dig this if you dig kind of fairy tales from Eastern Europe and want to hang out with some cool demons um, and learn a little bit more about that. And if you just like books set during winter. I thought that stuff worked pretty well. <laughs> What's your favorite part of winter, Andrew? Take us home. I mean, I used to like snow. Mm, before you got a car? No, just like before when it snowed. Oh, that part. Yes. It used to do that. You're right. I think the last like really, really good snow that we got kind of here in the Acela Corridor <laughs> is <laughs> that year... It must have been like 2015 or 2016 where it just 
it was really mild winter, but then it dumped and dumped and dumped like three feet of snow and completely shut all of society down. Yeah, my street was blocked off for like two weeks. It was yeah. great. And, and right like now, I'm the society being shut down for a long time isn't fun. No. But society being shut down for like 12 hours is kind of cool. Yes. They're, they're, so that was because I just like went out in that snowstorm and just like walked around and enjoyed the feeling of walking on the moon that I got. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, I will say there's some of the parts of this book where they are like enduring a long winter by staying inside as much as possible had some extra resonance here in the year 2020. Um, everybody in that village is on Twitter being like, stay at home. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> Actually, please, everybody stay at home. God. You stay at home. Jeez. Oh my God. Um, yeah, I had a fun time with this book, despite my complaints. They did not detract from my enjoyment of it overall. Yeah, that's our approach to fandom is one can criticize a thing and still like it. Hey, that's so, right. Uh, if you want to yeah. be our fan but also criticize us, you can send us an email. At, you don't know. You don't have to. No, you criticize. You can just say us. nice things. Send us an email. You choose not to. Overduepod at gmail.com. Hit us up on Twitter or Facebook at OverduePod. Thanks to folks like Rebecca, Tasha, Emily, Megan, Laura, Britt, Tabitha, Rhea, Stephen, Brandon, uh, and many more. Some folks responded to our like semi-monthly What You're Reading post. If you want to go to our Facebook or our Twitter, you'll find some good suggestions of what people are reading these days. Andrew, if folks want to know more about the show, where should they go? They should go to OverduePodcast.com, which is our internet website. Up there we have links to Apple Podcasts, Google Play, our RSS feed. Always, you can subscribe to the show, get new episodes when they come out, usually on Monday, sometimes other days when we do a bonus release. Uh, we have a new listener page you can go to if you are getting into the show or trying to get someone else into the show. Lord knows we all need to pass the time. Yep. That is a page full of episodes that we are particularly proud of and we think that you should go and uh, check out. Uh, we also have a Patreon page, patreon.com slash overdue pod. We completely understand if uh, money is tight in these circumstances and you can't give anything to us or if you are giving now and you need to like scale back or or cancel that uh, while we're still dealing with so much uncertainty, like we we get it, but we really deeply appreciate everybody who's who's uh, who's doing that for us still. And, and we hope that we are giving you something back to make it worth it. That's the goal. Um, that's the goal. We have decided on our April schedule. Let me run it down for you. Uh, the shadow of the wind by Carlos Ruiz of catching fire by Suzanne Collins. That's the second hunger games book. If you didn't know, uh, smoke jumpers to choose your own adventure by the OG R.A. Montgomery. <laughs> Uh, just remembering why we picked Smoke Jumper. Uh, and A Death in the Family by James Adji. I got to learn how to pronounce that man's name. Um, we'll get there. And then our bonus episode for April will be Encyclopedia Brown Boy Detective by Donald J. Sobel. Uh, and later this week, our most recent episodes of Hellboy should go live on the main feed. Um, Andrew talked about our Patreon. You can get those Hellboys episodes early, but... Uh, you'll see them on the main feed later this week. That's it. Get us out of here, Andrew. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. We hope that you are safe and well. And until we talk to you next time, try to be hungry. <laughs>
That was a HeadGum Podcast.